Well, that's our prayer, Lord, that we would see Christ more clearly and that we would be conforming to his great image. And uh, thank you for his great grace. Thank you for your love and faithfulness that we've sung about, uh, we've prayed about. We've, we, Lord, as we focus on our Bibles now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have great freedom to teach us uh, through your word as we uh, fight the good fight and we battle against sin and as we walk in, in holiness and newness of life in Christ. Show us how to be the men and women, the boys and girls that you've called us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. While you're turning to 1 Samuel 15, I wonder if you can think of your worst day at work. It wasn't too long ago, a man in church came to me and he said, Pastor Van, uh, this past Thursday I had just the, the most horrific day at work. I personally had to terminate 14 people from their job as we cut back. I remember one of our young men who's a police officer coming to me one day and he said, I'm working the night shift. He said, I was alone. It was out by the river. I was the first one there on a call where there was a body hanging from a tree over the river and I had to take care of that situation. That's a bad day at work. That's a bad day at work. I remember on a lighter note, uh, an old man walking into my office when I was a youth pastor and he said, uh, Pastor Van, I want to donate 26 chickens that I have to the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. I want you and your teens to kill them and butcher them for me, get them down there. I said, yes, sir, we'll do that. That was a pretty rough day at work, killing 26 chickens with a bunch of junior high kids. I believe Pastor Everett was actually along on that trip many years ago. Well, I don't know what kind of bad day you've had at work. Sometimes pastors and God's uh, leaders are called upon for difficult things. Those, um, they're not very often, but on occasion, a late night call, someone's been killed. You go to the home in the middle of the night. Those are difficult moments in ministry. I remember one time, two hours apart, I had a wedding and a funeral on the same day, just a couple hours apart. And it's a difficult day, one extreme to the other. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, as we read, we're going to see that God's man Samuel had a tough day at work. Um, I don't know what he told his wife the night, that night when he got home, but this is a difficult day for God's man. We're going to use it as a historical illustration this morning as we lay groundwork for the beginning of a two-part message today and then completing it next week. And this morning as we study 1 Samuel 15 and then look at some verses in Paul's epistle to the Romans, I want you to recognize that it is very important as we do battle with sin, we're in a sermon series on sin, that as we do battle, it's very important for you to have the right attitude. And you're going to get an understanding of how serious sin is in the eyes of God once again. And remember, as we talk about sin, sin is any violation of the word, the will, or the character of God. And in this passage, King Saul is called upon by God to do a special task. He doesn't complete that task. And I want you to notice, relating to last week's message, how pride enters in and causes him to sin. Let's read our chapter and break it down a little bit as we lay a groundwork, beginning with uh, a historical illustration on how horrific sin really is. 
This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king of Israel is Saul. You'll recall that Saul was the first king that Israel had. They had two more kings in their united kingdom. Saul, then David the shepherd boy, whom Saul chased around the wilderness for about ten years trying to kill him before David actually was able to take over the throne. And then David had a son with Bathsheba named Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived. And Solomon was the third king in Israel. And these were the golden years in Israel. After that, there was civil war, divided kingdom, and the people moved away from their love of God, and it just went downhill from there, basically. So this is during the reign of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel will remind Saul in the first verse, as we read, that the reason he has the authority to come to Saul and give him spiritual instruction is because he's the one that God used to anoint him as the king over Israel to begin with. Let's read the story. Here we go. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noticed what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camels, and donkeys. For the Amalekites, time was up. The first thing we see in our story is this instruction from Samuel to Saul on number one, the destruction, the destruction of the Amalekites. Now let's just stop here for a minute and talk about this because this kind of verse bothers a lot of people. People like Oprah Winfrey, for example, don't want to have this kind of God who would wipe out an entire people group. They want a very loving God. What we have to understand that God's love is balanced by his holiness, isn't it? What you need to understand is that the Amalekites had been around for a long time and they had been disregarding God. What, was tr- what is true for the Amalekites is true for all people of all times everywhere and it is that great overriding spiritual truth that we all know well but we don't always pay so much attention to it and it is what? Say it with me. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is always death. Just as sure as you throw a ball up in the air and it comes back down, the wages of sin is death. The law of gravity always works, and the spiritual law of, the, of sin receiving death always is in play. Let's talk about where these guys came from a little bit. These Amalekites are an interesting group of people. And if you'll think way back in the history in Genesis, you remember that Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Remember them? Jacob and Esau. And, and Esau was the older brother. Remember, he was the red-haired guy who was a hunter who sold his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob. And uh, Jacob was the son of promise, even though he was younger. It's a real interesting story. And Esau was kind of a wild man. And uh, one of the things you need to know is that in Genesis chapter, chapter 36, it tells us that Esau um, had four wives that he took, all from the pagan Canaanites. All right, And that wasn't God's plan, but Esau took four wives at least, all from the pagan Canaanites, and he had a son named Eliphaz um, who had a concubine named Timnah. So, so Esau gets married, and he and his wife have a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz has a, has a concubine, and with that concubine, he has a son whose name is Amalek. Amalek. So out of this illicit relationship comes a son named Amalek, who is the father of the Amalekites. And you need to understand that the Amalekites, all the time in biblical history, 
did nothing but create problems for God's people Israel. In fact, you'll know some of the things that they did. Um, in Exodus chapter 17 is that great story that probably all of you know from Sunday school days where Moses is leading the children of Israel through, through the wilderness. And remember, the Amalekites came, these sons of Amalek, the Amalekites came, a wicked people, and they attacked God's people. And do you remember that Moses stood up on the side of the hill, and as long as he had his hands up in the air, the Israelites were winning the battle, but when he got fatigued and brought his arms down, then the Amalekites began to take over and push back God's people. And so Aaron, his brother, and her came and held up each of his arms so that the battle was won that day. And they assisted Moses, and uh, God gave them a great victory. That was over the Amalekites. The Amalekites were famous uh, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Um, imagine uh, several million people, maybe six million people, men, women, and children, all of their livestock, all of their goods on carts and so forth, as they're going. You can imagine that that strung out for a long distance, and some of the weaker people, or if people got sick, would stay in camp, and they wouldn't catch up with the group, and they would stay back. Some of the livestock and the herders would stay back and straggle back. The Amalekites were great for swooping down on the tail, on the, on the rear of the Israelites as they went and, and would snatch them and kill them and loot and, uh, and take their things. And so they were nothing but a problem to God's people for years. In the book of Judges, they would come in the book of Judges, the Amalekites, even after the Israelites were in the land, the Amalekites were famous for about this time of year when the grain and the corn were all mature and ripe, the Amalekites would come sweeping in, attack the Israelites, and take all and harvest all of their grain and try to wipe out their village and take off with all of their plantings of the year. Just create all kinds of problems. Well, you need to understand that um, God's patience only lasts so long. That's true of all people. And so you need to be careful about letting this verse upset you because this is a pattern that you will see out of the righteous judgment of God on a regular basis in the Word of God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, when the sinfulness of the whole world became so intense, what did God say? God told his righteous man Noah to get his family on a boat because he was going to flood the whole world and he wiped out the whole world. The wages of sin is death. It's going to happen again in the future. It's going to happen. Uh, it happens with individuals on occasion, and, and entire people groups will be wiped out. In Second Peter chapter 3, God says that at the end, even as people mock and make fun of God, where is His appearing? He's never coming back. Everything's going to stay the same, that He's going to one day wipe out the whole world with fire in a final righteous judgment. The wages of sin is always death. These Amalekites were nothing but a problem. And for hundreds of years, God had been patient with them. For several hundred years, God had been patient with them. And now he said, enough is enough. That's it. And so we have this instruction by Samuel to King Saul that he is to devote himself to the destruction of the Amalekites. He tells him, you're not to take anything. Everything is to be burnt. Everything is to be destroyed. And it's to be, as it were, some kind of an offering before the Lord. It's going to be delivered over to me. Let's go back to our text in 1 Samuel 15. 
And thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. And, and actually back then he told the Israelites, never forget what they've done to them and one day you're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now go and strike them, he said. We've already read this, but let's read it again. Verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Sometimes God is hard to understand. This is a clear word, isn't it? It's not difficult to understand. Wipe them out. That's your assignment. And so Saul was to be devoted to the destruction of the Amalekites. The next thing we see in the passage, and we'll not read every word of it, is the disobedience of Saul. The disobedience of Saul. Notice that Saul summons the people. He puts together, in verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, he puts together an army of about 30,000 foot soldiers. And then look at verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And, verse 8, now it gets interesting. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That's disobedience. We have the disobedience of Saul. And I want you to notice um, uh, what's coming up here. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Isn't that interesting? All right, so the instruction is clear. Saul and the people are to wipe everything out. And so it was easy for them to take all the, all the junk and get rid of it and, and wipe it out. But when they saw beautiful calves and sheep and all the good things, they wanted them for themselves. And Saul, in his pride, and clearly he had a huge issue with his ego, and he was inflated with pride, he decides, we, the text doesn't tell us why, but he decides to keep King Agag alive. You have to believe that it was for the victory parade, huh? What did that mean to his people for King Saul to come through with this great victory that God had given him and to have O King Agag, this longtime hated enemy of Israel, in a cage, on a cart, marching through the streets of Jerusalem, all so that the praise of Saul would take place. Saul has a deceptive heart, though. Notice, what's, notice what happens. The word of the Lord, verse 10, came to Samuel. And, and in, a, in a speaking in what we would call an anthropomorphism, that is, uh, thinking the way a man would think uh, so that we can understand it, God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was extremely distressed over the disobedience of his king. Samuel understood the holiness of God. Samuel understood the importance of obedience. It's going to be reiterated in these verses clearly later in the passage. And all night long, Samuel, who is God's prophet, God's man, is distressed. He can't sleep. Here's what happens. And Samuel rose early the next morning to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gogo. What is that all about? Do you remember last week's sermon, how we talked about embedded in the, in the essence of the flesh is this concept of pride and arrogance and self-will and that it is totally tied in with the sinful decision-making processes of our lives, that it is very difficult, that if we could remove pride, obedience would be much simpler. 
But this self-love, this arrogance, this opportunity to elevate himself in the eyes of his people. And one of the very first things that Saul does is he builds a monument for himself. It's incredible how we think. Well, Saul is convincing himself of things that are not true. Notice now what happens, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Had he performed the commandment of the Lord? Absolutely not. It was a partial obedience at best. It was partial obedience which equals disobedience. And Samuel said, verse 14, And then, then what is then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Oh, we have spiritual motives. Yeah, we really love God. We're really all about obedience. And it was the people. Notice earlier in the passage, look at verse 9. Let your eyes pop back up there. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the animals. So when Samuel, God's man, confronts Saul, what does Saul say? Oh, it was the people. It wasn't well, It wasn't me. My heart's right. I Oh, yeah, I built a monument to myself, and I, I kept Agag, but we, we only kept the best. Oh, and it was to sacrifice to the Lord, which meant what? Which meant that they could send everything they had to market and make more money if they took this free animals from the Amalekites. Saul, look at 16, and then Samuel says to Saul, Stop! Just shut up! Just be quiet! You're just digging a deeper hole. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul says, oh, speak. I'm interested in what the Lord has to say. Isn't it amazing how people who are living in disobedience and people who are self-righteously steeped in their own pride, making bad decisions, can convince themselves that they're making right decisions and that their motives are pure even when they're filled with pride. That is how blinding pride can be. How it leads to sin. We have... The destruction of the Amalekites, the disobedience of Saul, the distress of Samuel. This is now entering the passage, part of the passage that is the dismissal of Saul. It's over for Saul. His disobedience is going to render him useless before the Lord. And so verse 17. And Samuel said, though you, are, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribe of Israel? In other words, when you were little in your own eyes and you were humble, God elevated you. The Lord anointed you king over Israel and you didn't have anything to do with it. God lifted you up and the Lord sent you on a mission and he said, go, devote the destruction, the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? What's wrong with you? What didn't you get about that? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? It violated the word, the will, the character of God. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, he says again, took of the things. Notice what Samuel's answer is in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. 
You're worshiping yourself, Saul. You've already set up a monument. That's the idolatry. The pride has led you to worship something other than a righteous and holy God. And God doesn't want your stinking worship with your animals that you kept alive from the Amalekites when he already told you what to do with them. God wants your obedience. Isn't that interesting? God really doesn't care for people to sing and to praise and to worship Him when they're living in sin. And one of the lessons that we have from King Saul is how easy it is to convince ourselves and to rationalize and to accommodate sin in our lives. I was just talking to a guy the other day about an axiom that I've come up with in my counseling ministry. I've probably referenced it here before. I was dealing not too long ago with someone that I was suspicious that they were involved in an extramarital affair. He's sitting in my office and he's telling me all the good things and how everything's right and nothing's wrong and everything's right and blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself as he was talking, I don't think so. Something's not right here. And I have learned through the years that all adulterers are liars. And it's amazing how they can convince themselves. But I've sit, I sit in my office and I listen. I'm talking and I think, he really thinks he's telling me the truth right now. He doesn't even recognize that he's lying through his teeth. He really thinks somehow that he's right. It is amazing how self-deceptive people can be. Especially when they're involved and engaged in ongoing chain sinning, successive sinning. And they have cover up in their lives. That's a little bit what Saul's got going on here. One thing leads to another. He recognizes that he's out of control. He convinces he convinces himself that his motives are pure. He convinces himself that God is pleased with him. And Samuel says, just knock it off. It's over. God doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. But sin is so blinding. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed, verse 24, the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's still casting blame. He's still not taking personal responsibility. What you have here is Saul now repeatedly admitting that he had sinned, but I want you to notice the self-defense mechanisms are still up in his life. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Okay, Samuel, I know that I sinned. Help me, help me get forgiveness and get me right with God's so that I can go on with my life and get on with my victory parade and go back and see if people are bowing down to my statue. You know, you're kind of reading between the lines. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. There it is, the dismissal of Saul. And Samuel turns to go away, and Saul sees the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel uses that as an illustration, and he says... Verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to our neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he shouldn't have regret. Then he said, Saul says, I have sinned. But here you see the heart of Saul. Look at, look at verse 30. I have sinned. But he says to Samuel, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed down before the Lord. You see his pride, don't you? Say, I'm Saul is upset because he got caught. Saul is upset because he can't be the king anymore. Saul is not upset because he has grieved the heart of God. That's what the blindness of pride does. That's what sin does. And now we have the death of Agag. 
to wrap up the passage. Agag was the Amalekite king that Saul had kept alive. And notice what happens. And then Samuel said, verse 32, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. You know, it was a close call, but I think I'm going to get away with it. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Whoa. There's an artist rendering of it up on the screen. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a mouse in the corner listening to his conversation? Hey, honey, I'm home. Oh, hi, honey. How did your day go? Uh, pretty, pretty rough day. I had to hack Agag in pieces. Saul didn't do his job. I had to dismiss the king. I had to kill the pagan king. Got my clothes all bloody. I don't know what that conversation was like, but this could not have been an easy day for God's man Samuel. But so much did Samuel fear God that he carried out his in obedience. But I'd like to carry the story just a little bit farther as a historical illustration, laying a foundation for really for next week's message on what our attitude has to be to live in victory over sin as believers in the Lord Christ. Samuel knew to hack Agag in pieces, and in a way, Agag serves as a type of sin in our lives, doesn't he? The Amalekites are like a type of sin. God said, remove it. But Saul thought to himself, this could really serve me well. It really makes me feel good to have Agag in a cage marching down through the streets of Jerusalem. And it elevates me. He is compartmentalizing part of his life. You need to know that if you read another 15 chapters towards the end of the book, in chapter 30, it's probably 20 years later. And Pastor Everett, a couple years ago, preached a message out of that chapter called The Burning of Ziklag. Ziklag is a city. It's there in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's an interesting story because David at that time is still running from Saul. He has a group of loyal, faithful followers and their wives and children. They have set up home base in a city called Ziklag. David and his men are now off out in the wilderness. And while they're gone, guess what? The Amalekites come burn the place, steal all their stuff, and kidnap their wives and their children. What does Samuel know? Samuel knows that if you don't put Agag to death, if you don't obey God and get rid of the, get rid of the scourge, it will creak, continually pop up its head in the future. If you don't thoroughly deal with it. So as Agag represents for us in this historical account, a very emotional, a very graphic, a very gruesome account, and I'm not saying in any way this morning that you're to go home and take a sword to your sin and anybody in your life that's causing you to sin. This is a different time. God is dealing with people differently right now. This passage alone proves that all people everywhere in the church are dispensationalists at some level. But it was a horrible, horrible horrific day for Samuel. But he knew it has to be wiped out. We have to have this attitude of no mercy. No compartmentalization. I can keep this little part of my past. I can keep this little part of, of, of some sin that I, I just, it's really not going to hurt anything. It's representative of a greater body of sin. But now the Amalekites are under control. I'm not really given over to that habit. I just have this little part that I've kept alive. And Samuel says, you've got to get rid of it. And Saul never got rid of it completely. He evidently never completed the task. Because in about 20 years, there were enough of them that they had grown back. 
that the Amalekites were strong enough in number to come through as bandits and do what they always did and attack God's people, try to undermine and cause problem. You got any ag gags in your life? You got some things in your life that, that God has said, you need to get rid of that. You need to put it to death. The preachers of another century would call it the mortification of sin. Putting it to death. In fact, let's go to Paul now for a second part of our message today. This is a historical illustration as we build an attitude. We want to be a people with an attitude today. Um, in Romans chapter 6 is where I want us to go. And then we're going to pick it up next week. And we're going to get to the practical. But I want to show you first a, a very important spiritual principle. So we've had an historic illustration, and now a spiritual principle. Next week, a practical application of exactly how do I put sin to death in my life, including how do I deal with temptation when it pops up. But I want to show you some very important spiritual principles. And Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are very important chapters that have to do with how the believer must think about sin and how God in Christ has given us the victory over sin. And I want you to see in Romans chapter 6, and let's just look at our eyes go down to verse 6. We're popping into the middle of, a, of, of teaching, of detailed and in-depth teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving the Roman believers. Our men, by the way, with Dr. Shupi, are going through this on Wednesday nights, Romans 6, 7, and 8. Really excellent teaching. There's still time to pop in there. Don't be afraid to jump in now, guys, at any time, 7 o'clock Wednesday night. In classroom A2. We know, verse 6 of Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self or our flesh, our old man was crucified with him, that would be Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I want to continue to read the passage, but I want you to picture what's going on in the mind of God when you come to a place in your life, like Buddy King did, where he acknowledged that he needed to repent of his sinfulness, he needed to accept the completed work of Christ on the cross on his behalf, and he accepted by faith for his salvation what Jesus did on the cross through his shed blood. He paid the penalty for his sin, he looks to Christ, and he is saved and forgiven once and for all for his sinfulness. Notice what happens. For one who has died has been set free from sin, Paul is teaching, verse 7. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay, so when did we die with Christ? I mean, Jesus died on a cross over 2,000 years ago. How is it that we died with Christ? You need to understand that this is a spiritual principle that goes on in the mind of God on my behalf. Remember, the wages of sin is always death. And so... Because I'm a sinner, both imputed sin from Adam and voluntary willingly missing the mark of God's justice and holiness standard, because I love to sin, and so I'm guilty before a holy God that I have to die for my sin. But thanks be to God for His unspeakable love and grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. But the moment I come to Christ in the mind of God, it's equal to me going to the cross and dying for my own sin. But Jesus did it for me. But in the mind of God, that righteousness was imputed to me as though the price were paid in full, as though I died for my own sin. All right? And so he's saying, look, you died with Christ. 
And the old man, the body of sin, is brought to nothing. It's conquered. It's over. Sin no more has dominion over you. You no more have to be a slave to sin. But you say, then, Pastor Van, how come I like to sin so much? That's the point of this message and where it's going next week. we got to deal with the remnant of our flesh. Until we get to heaven, in 1 John chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, he said, we long for the day of his appearing when we're going to see him, Jesus, as he is. We're going to be with him and we're going to be like him. We're going to have a new body and this body of death, this sinful struggle that Paul talks about in chapter 7, where he says, all the things that I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. You know that feeling. I don't have to put up on the screen illustrations of all the ways we like to sin. We love all those little sinful thoughts that we have. And we have little tidbits and remnants from the past of how we like to revisit old sin. And how sin is a battle and how Satan is continually through the weakness of the flesh trying to tear us down and cause us to sin. But in the mind of God, it's though we're dead to sin. We already died for the wages of our sin. And look what he says. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. It's once and for all. Okay, when, when we have communion or we don't hold mass or services where we re-crucify Christ, he doesn't die repeatedly. Christ, as many faiths believe or other people believe, that Christ is being crucified once again on behalf of my sin. He's shedding his blood brand new for me. He's sacrificing his body brand new again for me. That's not true. It was a once and for all completed sacrifice. That's largely what the whole book of Hebrews is about. That it was a sufficient sacrifice and that's it. It's over and done. You are free from sin when you are in Christ. And you are now alive unto God in Christ. So just in the same way that we died with Christ, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, verse 10, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we died with Christ. We raised with Christ, spiritually speaking, in the mind of God. We're now seated in the heavenlies. We're positioned in righteousness as though we paid for our own sin. But we didn't. Jesus did it for us. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you see verse 11? So you must, you also must consider yourself, reckon it to be true. You don't have an old boss named sin who can rule you around anymore. The problem is our new boss, Jesus, gives us freedom over our old boss, sin. The problem is when our old boss, sin, speaks to us, somehow it brings out, a, out of something in our flesh that wants to obey the old boss. And it's like when the old boss, sin, speaks something in my flesh, is kind of like trained as a bent to want to go sin. Even though my new boss, Jesus, says, you don't have to do that. And so we have a, we have a battle, don't we? And so he said, in ver- back up in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we, we've been crucified. We're dead to sin. Now turn to chapter 8 and look at verse 13 quickly. Because here's the contrast. Here's the tension I want to leave you with today at some level. So then, verse 12 of Romans 8 So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Okay, we, we've died to the flesh. But notice what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, capital S, through God's Holy Spirit, you do what? Put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Now, wait a minute. 
He just said, I'm dead to sin, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, I need, me, is the subject there, you, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So at some level, the believer in Christ, as he lives his daily life in the Christian life, is responsible to hack up the hand gags. You're responsible to kill sin at a certain... What does that mean? If I've already been crucified with Christ and I'm dead to sin, spiritually speaking, what is it about my daily living in the flesh that I still have to put sin to death? Let's go to Colossians 3 and with this we're done. And we're setting the stage now for next week. It's very important for you to be here next week. No one is allowed to be absent. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. What I think here is that for a lot of us, we've never gotten this in our Christian life. And as the world presses in on us, and as sin tries to undermine us, we just yield ourselves over to it. And we don't reckon ourselves dead to it. And we don't, on a daily basis, attack sin with an attitude. Colossians 3, Paul teaches very similarly to Romans 6, 7, and 8, only in kind of a summary form. He says in verse 1, If you then have been raised with Christ, you should seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. See, you were crucified. You're dead. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you would think, if I'm dead in Christ, why am I so alive to wanting to sin in the flesh? It's a tension. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now look at verse 5, the beginning words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I thought He just said, I'm dead in Christ. Now He's telling me to put it to death. This sin. The subject is you. You, if you were diagramming the sentence in verse 5, you put to death. The grammar, put to death, is a Greek word that literally means to kill it. That's the word mortify. Kill it. So my job as a Christian, at some level, is to kill sin. I am to kill the the desires of the flesh, and I'm to overcome it and kill it, so that I can have victory over it. What is earthly in you? You're to kill these things. Look at sexual immorality. Impurity. That's a huge word. Covering a broad range of things. Passion. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked, past tense, he's talking to believers, when you were living in them. You used to live in that stuff. But now, there's the contrast. You must do what? You must Put them all away. And we do it how? Back up in verse 5. By mortifying it. By putting it to death. we got to kill Agag. Next week, how do we kill Agag? How do you do that? What does that look like? For this morning, can you identify some Agag residual in your life? It's a perfect name, isn't it? Agag. Agag. But what's the proverb? Something in my flesh runs me back to my gag so that I return to my vomit over and over and over. We've got to kill it. And the attitude is one that Samuel had. Take it and kill it, Saul. God said, do it. 
I suspect we're a little bit easy on ourselves. You know that? We're pretty accommodating. We're pretty comfortable with a certain level. It's like we have a sin meter in our lives. And that sin meter, if it, as long as it stays kind of in a safe, in-control zone, we're okay. And once in a while, we redline that thing and it scares us, our own sinfulness, right? But when we keep that sin meter and God's looking at us like, well, you killed mostly. We can point out all the Amalekites we killed and all the trash heaps that we burned. But look at all the good stuff we brought with us from the old life that we're protecting, that we're packaging. And we kind of like ag-gag. Kill it. You've got to kill it. It's bound prayer. Before I pray, would you just examine your own heart? It's a good time to ask God to renew you. Um, With a new passion, with a new intensity, with a new attitude, that we would align ourselves with the heart and mind of God and begin to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that we would stop accommodating it and that we would want to have the attitude of Samuel, not Saul. And attack it and kill it and mortify and to do our part. We have the power to do that because of what has already happened in Christ. And we are, praise God, already victorious over sin. So we can do it. All believers can live in victory over sin. Oh, it raises lots of questions. We'll try to address most of them. What in your life represents the Amalekites? You got Agag in a closet somewhere? You got some little lambs and calves that you brought back that were supposed to be destroyed? Sneaking around? Living with a significant level of comfort with the sin in your life? It's time to gag on it and get rid of Agag. Would you ask God this week to magnify that, to sensitize you to it, so that he can begin to do a new work in all of us and at Fellowship Bible Church? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just show us how to walk in victory. Thank you for the great work of Christ at the cross where we can have salvation in him. And thank you that Jesus represented us in our, in our death and, and that it counted and it was good. It satisfied. It fulfilled the demands of you, our holy heavenly father. Thank you for bringing us into your family, making us your children, connecting us as your body, the church. Father, we know that you want to create a pure and spotless church. You want your bride to be clean and pure. So help us to get rid of Agag. Continue to teach us and grow us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.